Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Explanation is the podcast from the BBC World Service that goes beyond the spin, exploring the important questions about long-running stories and the latest global news. An honest explanation of the events shaping our lives. Search for The Explanation wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to Discovery on the BBC. I'm James Gallagher and I'm going to take you on a little trip. A warm welcome. Thanks for coming here today. My name is Liam Modlin. I'm a psychology and psychotherapy lead in psychedelics at the Psychoactive Trials Group at King's College London. No, thank you very much for inviting me in, Liam, because this is where the psychedelic research happens, isn't it? And that's what we're having a look at, whether it can actually be a big breakthrough in the field of mental health research and treatment. So where am I? You're at the clinical trials facility and you're currently in our dosing room. We're going to be talking a lot about psychedelics and how they could revolutionise mental health. So first of all, let's be clear, what are psychedelics? Well, here's psychiatrists James Rucker and first David Arizzo. The more classic psychedelics, they are psilocybin, which exists in magic mushrooms or magic truffles, DMT, which is the psychedelic active compound in a psychedelic brew used in the Amazonian cultures uh, called ayahuasca, and we're using that in trials to test it for depression as well. Mescaline is coming from the peyote cactus, and then LSD, synthetic compound developed around the Second World War in Switzerland. Then you also have 5-MeO-DMT, toxin from a toad in nature. So you have all these different compounds. So a psychedelic drug is a type of drug that has a specific effect in the brain, stimulates a certain type of serotonin receptor in the brain in an unusual way, and this results in quite a profound and unusual experience that can be mystical, very pleasurable, but also anxiety-provoking. People can misperceive things, even hallucinate. It's a characteristic state, and it's defined by this pharmacological mechanism of action, this action at this specific type of serotonin receptor, and that is what a psychedelic is. We'll hear a lot more from James and David later as we explore this cutting edge of modern psychiatry. Because despite the talk about mystical experiences, this is far from a 1960s drug-fueled lovin'. Much of the work into psychedelic treatment is still at the research stage, but the most promising results have been in cases of depression when other treatments just haven't worked. And later this year, it's happening for the first time in Australia, psychiatrists will be able to prescribe MDMA, so that's ecstasy, as well as psilocybin, which is the chemical found in magic mushrooms. And Liam Modlin has used the drugs in his clinic. As you can see, it's a very different room than your normal psychotherapy NHS clinic. I have to say, it is nicer than my bedroom. There's mood lighting, little candles everywhere, battery-powered ones, no flames. Aromatherapy, what's the smell? Currently, it's lavender. Lavender, lovely. Nice bed, weighted blanket, rainforest scenes on the background. It's kind of, I think every hospital room should be like this. I agree. How does it make you feel to be in this room? I'm very calm in here. I want to I wanna crawl on the bed. Can I jump on? Yeah, please, make yourself okay. comfortable. Oh, 
I really endangered falling asleep in there. Well, that's the intent uh, behind it. Um, so a comfortable setting uh, seems to be conducive to feelings of safety and relaxation and really making the most out of the experience. So you've got to be here basically from before the drug's taken until the drug's worn off. That's correct. Okay, so when I come in, when would you get the psychedelic therapy? The, the drug, drug itself. itself. Yeah. The drug itself, you'll probably get it around 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we invite participants to come around around 8 a.m. We check in with them. There's final physical exams. Ask them about their current state of mind. We take informed consent. Then we administer the psychedelic. But importantly, with psychedelic therapy, the process starts a lot earlier, weeks before, when we start the preparation phase, and they meet with their therapist, and they practice some of the techniques and skills that we think seem to be helpful for participants to make the most out of the experience, ensure psychological safety, and gear them up for a meaningful day. Now, if you've been enjoying the music in this episode... It was composed by Ian Rulia. He tried multiple treatments for his depression before taking psilocybin in clinical trials. He now runs an advocacy group called Saipan for people who've had psychedelic therapy. So I've taken part in two clinical trials. The first one was in 2015, and that was the pilot study. And that involved two doses of psilocybin, one 10 milligram dose, and a week later, a 25 milligram dose. And the 10 milligram dose, I was able to resist, didn't let go. I didn't let the drug fully take hold of me. Mm -hmm. And that's how really you get the most potential from psilocybin is to let go. You know, go with the flow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a saying that really helped me during the phrase I used was in and through were like, whatever comes up the first dose I was scared. I felt frozen. And I was like, I need to retain control mm. because letting go is going to be the end of me, you know. Mm. Um, Did the second attempt work yeah. better? So for the second dose, I would say because it's two and a half times stronger, I didn't have as much choice Ability whether to, yeah. to let go or not. That's why maybe a higher dose is needed mm. because I, I see my depression now as a clinging on as a, a way of trying to control and push these feelings and thoughts and emotions away. And it never works. They never disappear. So psilocybin, it forces me to relinquish my grip, to let go. We are here the whole day, so the participant is never left alone. There's always a therapist at their side. And the role of the therapist on the day is supportive. So we might practice in preparation some breathing exercises, for example, that on the day with the psychedelic can be very, very helpful. Let's have a go. Let's have a go. I'll invite you to make yourself comfortable. I already have. <laughs> I invite you then to close your eyes. Okay. And just start by taking a slow, gentle in-breath. And release gently when it feels right for you. Toes for the day. Trust, let go and be open. All is welcome go in and through and Liam how long would it take when you were in here to start having a psychedelic experience after you take the drug normally we can think between 15 minutes to 60 minutes you will start feeling some of the subjective effects 
Sometimes it could be subtle, sometimes it can be transient nausea, bit of a headache, bit of discomfort or other feelings of relaxation and calm. And then you also might start no- noticing some audio or visual changes. And sometimes a lot of participants are also wearing their eye shades and they're listening to music and they might report a different kind of quality to the music that they're hearing. And we prepare participants to use that moments where consciousness becomes altered somehow, uh, to welcome it, to be curious about it, to be open to it, to make the most of the experience. And what's your role in here for eight hours? On the day itself, my role is supportive. The, novel the potential thing, for it to be really unsettling, isn't it? It can also be unsettling, and in a way it might be, and we're still investigating it, something about the confrontation with what is unsettling and working through it and processing it as opposed to avoiding it is part of the healing mechanisms for those who respond to treatment. So during both trials, during all three doses, because there was one dose in the second trial, a similar pattern really of resisting initially. I remember the high dose thinking, I never want to feel like this again, I want this to stop. But the team were around me. They knew the difficulty I had during the first dose. Mm. And they were like, you know, in and through, whatever comes up, you know, approach it, go into it. And I literally looked my demons in the eye. I saw my abusive father and they encouraged me to go towards that thought of my father. And it was terrifying. It was horrible. But by doing that, by going towards, I saw him for what he really was. Not this omniscient figure that could crush me. He was just, uh, the words that came to my head were just a a pathetic little wretch. The opposite of what I thought. And I thought it'd be the end of me. But by being able to face him, I realised that I could face anything. But after that, it wasn't like I entered a space of blissful happiness. It was that I entered a space where I knew that I was equipped to face any emotion that came up and I could welcome it with open arms and I could go, you know, in and through whatever came up. So I had many different phases within that. Tears were as valid as laughter. And there were moments during that that I did feel this this kind of blissful calm you know, and for somebody that's been depressed for so many years, that was such a huge revelation to me. It was the first time I'd ever felt self-compassion. And because if you're, if you feel connected to every living thing, that therefore includes you. You mm-hmm. can't leave yourself off that list of every living thing. And I felt for the first time, you know, a deep compassion and love for myself. And then so you went on quite a emotional yeah. roller coaster from yeah. very dark places yeah to yeah. some very hopeful optimistic ones yeah i don't know if i would have been able to have got to those places without the team around me because it's the therapy as well as the drug that's the yeah, important thing precisely here. i think that's why i was able to have the courage to to go through those really dark periods and get to that lighter place You can really hear from Ian Connie how much work goes into this, both from Ian and from the therapist. It's not just 
pop a pill and everything's fine. So I caught up with Liam Modlin again, as well as with Dr. James Rucker, who's a consultant psychiatrist at King's College London. And it became clear that using psychedelics is not a new idea. The human race has a long and complicated history of these drugs. Psilocybin in particular has been used in spiritual and ceremonial healing rituals in geographically distinct tribes around the world. So there's something common there that the human race is interacting with, this sense of mysticism or spirituality maybe that these drugs have a tendency to elicit. But then, of course, we picked up the story in the Western world with the discovery of LSD, and that was in, well, 1938 originally, but 1943 was when its psychoactive properties were discovered. It's worth remembering the state psychiatry was in back then in terms of treatment. You're going to have to remind me. What, what existed, very little. But ultimately that was why we had asylums, because we didn't know how to treat mental illness. So LSD was of particular interest, and it was particular interest because... It mimics some of the effects seen in schizophrenia, some of the symptoms of acute psychosis. Not all of them, but just some of them. And that was really interesting because it challenged the paradigm of the time that was predominantly psychoanalytic. Suddenly here was a biological agent, a drug, causing some of the symptoms of a disorder that hitherto had been understood in psychoanalytic terms. So in a funny way, it wasn't just LSD, of course, there were lots of other things going on at the same time. LSD kind of ushered in modern psychopharmacology. Why did it disappear as an idea? Or why has it only relatively recently come back? There are a series of UN conventions that wanted to control the trade in narcotic substances. And LSD and cannabis and various other drugs that we see are very stigmatised today. We're caught up in all of that. And we're prohibited not only for, for recreational use, but also for medical use. And that's what killed it. Liam? It's all very exciting now, though, isn't it? It is exciting. And one of the things that I appreciate about working within clinical trials is that we also mitigate the excitement with some serious science and really to try to get a sense of how these compounds work in the brain. Also, what they seem to elicit for patients that have been suffering for sometimes decades. And James mentioned LSD. And in the first paper in 1950 that was published in English, LSD in the treatment, I think, of alcoholism, the conclusion there was that LSD may be an aid to shortening psychotherapy. So in a way, we are definitely picking up from where we left. Picking up the baton from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's striking that James was mentioning, how, how, you know, go back a century and there were patients that we just didn't know what to do with. Even today, there are people that we try everything with and it doesn't make a difference. We're still not able to treat some people with severe depression. Yes, correct. And, and a lot of the patients that we see in our trials, they are by definition treatment resistant. And there's something about the interaction of psychedelics and the psychological support that may help them get in touch with self-empowerment or hope for the future. Run me through the trial data because you, you've published on the effectiveness of psilocybin in people that don't respond to depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were the results? People were all given psychological support and they were all given psilocybin they were just randomized to three doses and what you get is this dose dependent separation between the three doses and the largest dose 25 milligram dose statistically separates from the lowest dose for six weeks and it's clinically significant a little under a third of people go into remission that's a big deal when it comes to depression that has not got better for years or has been resistant to many, many treatments. You know, you don't normally see that in a trial. But it wasn't so amazing that I was thinking that's not clinically credible. James, because I think, did you say that you noticed the difference between the different groups for six weeks and then you 
no longer notice the difference after some people don't respond some people respond a bit very much some people have profound experiences um that seem to shift their perspective quite fundamentally and that has positive effects for months even years it's no panacea though I think that's a really important point because there's huge amounts of hype and even wild speculation around using psychedelics in mental health. And yet it's very clear that they don't work for everyone. Now, there are larger trials underway and they're going to give us a clearer picture of their effectiveness. This is Discovery from the BBC. And next, I want to delve deep inside the brain because what i want to know is what are these psychedelics doing and how might they be beneficial in mental health so i caught up with david arizzo who's the clinical director at the center for psychedelic research at imperial college london now david i've got a big challenge for you and it's the whole reason you're here is to explain the complicated neuroscience of how these drugs work and why they might be useful therapeutically yeah. It's a small question. It's really. a small, small <laughs> question and it's difficult. And obviously we have scraped the top of the iceberg, but I think it's useful to think about that they seem to have quite cross-diagnostic potential, whether we speak about addictions or depression or anxiety, OCD. They are being tested and look promising for non-psychotic mental health conditions. That because they're dealing with some kind of like common feature of all of those? Across all these conditions, you have maladaptive thought patterns and maladaptive behaviours where you're trapped in entrenched thinking and behaviours. could be that you have very negative self-image and thoughts about yourself and you're stuck in it. What we think that the psychedelics are doing, and we have some data to support things in that direction, instead of having top-down control of how we perceive and understand ourselves in the world and the world around us, it might be more like a bottom-up phenomenon where the psychedelics allow for other things to come up and reshape these models. And there are different data to support that. So that's a quite dominant theory at the moment. We can even see that the brain hierarchy is collapsing during psychedelics. So What's the brain hierarchy? You have sort of part of the brain's cortex, which is processing assumption and beliefs about the world and ourselves. And then you have sort of lower in that hierarchy, you have more sensory and emotional areas. And we can see that collapsing during the psychedelic experience. So if you see the brain as a mountain landscape, the valleys and the mountains, if they are very deep and high, it's, you will be trapped in specific patterns and paths moving around. And we can see a flattening of that landscape, so it's easier to move around. We can see that in healthy people. And now we have very much more recent data looking at depression. And what we can see there, if we measure how these different brains network relate to each, to each other, yeah, we can see that brain becomes overall more integrated. The very flexible brain state allows for a flattening of that landscape. So if you have very high mountains and very deep valleys, you are almost enforced to take specific paths to get around. It's too difficult to climb all these mountains, so you get sort of trapped in these different routes through the landscape. And in a way, the valleys are lifted a bit, the mountains are reduced in the acute psychedelic state, and that allows for different paths to be taken. If your brain is currently forcing you to take a path through the deep, dark woods or some, somewhere horrible, then that flattening the changing of the landscape of the brain during the psychedelic treatment... Allows. allows you to chart a new route. Yeah, exactly. And it might even be that some of those changes are somewhat enduring. And we have seen the more this landscape is flattening, the more therapeutic effects we see in these depressed patients in the trials. 
it needs to be replicated and understood further. Is it a bit like my mug right now? And if this was a depressed mug rather than a brain, it's a little bit like taking it back to its clay putty-like states where you can remould it and then put it back in the kiln in order to change what it's like. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. It's a reshaping your, your mug a bit and putting it back in the oven so that it can be long-lasting because one of the really fascinating things that really speaks, I would say, to a paradigm shift in terms of treatment and psychiatry is that a single intervention or very, very few interventions have long-lasting effects. So you have ketamine already for depression. The effects after a single intervention typically a week or two. And here we potentially it's like they're even longer-lasting with the classic psychedelics when used for intervention. So you, you have a drug that induces a really fascinating psychological experiences and we can see that the nature and the profoundness of those experiences seem to be predictive of the therapeutic outcome. And we see long-lasting effects after single interventions. Those things combined speak to a very different paradigm from what we're used to. David, thank you so much for coming in the studio and for tolerating my hideous analogies about bugs. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that's how psychedelics might work in the brain. Now, we heard from Ian earlier, who took part in the trials. This is how he's feeling now. I still struggle with depression now. I felt depression and anxiety free for three months afterwards fully and then that gradually tailed off between three and six months. That three months? Mm. Had you ever had a period like that before? No. There'd be glimmers, moments maybe, and you could have like a nice few hours with a friend or enjoy music more fully or whatever, but really there was never a period of time where that cloud parted, that weight lifted, mm. you know. But having three months free of depression was... Oh, it was amazing. It wasn't like I felt like a different person. And this is where some of those threads carried over into my normal daily life. Those feelings of I can face anything that comes up, any emotion, any thought, and I'll approach it openly with compassion, that carried on. That feeling of being connected to nature and other people and myself, that carried through as well. And to just really simple things, like being able to have a conversation with somebody and not instantly walk away from that conversation, tearing it to pieces, going, all the anxieties going, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I trusted myself. It was like I felt able to be myself more than I ever had before. And what happened after those three months, Ian? During the three to six month period afterwards, call it an afterglow, literally things feel lighter, things even look lighter. You know, the leaves on the trees are shining back at you, the sun feels that bit more intense. Mm. You're just more alive. When that starts to fade, you start to feel yourself grasping. So there were certain things I did to reconnect myself to that state. A large part of that was the playlist of music that was really key to the whole experience during the trial and afterwards so that was a way of me getting back into that place or reconnecting with that place you can feel that maybe the the clouds are coming back together the weight is growing heavier again mm. i think there's a lot more emphasis now on what they call integration work so after the trial the team looked after me as best they could when the trial comes to an end there has to be a definite end to that this is what we're trying to work on with Saipan, the organisation that mm. I've set up with Next Trial Participant. There's an increasing awareness that 
integration work is needed after the the trial itself, after the dosing day. So that's where somebody takes the new connections they've made during those sessions and uses those to make small subtle changes to their their daily habits and their their life in general so that's that's the way that these breakthroughs these epiphanies can actually have a lasting effect we're also looking to connect trial participants like ourselves with each other do you feel like it's really made a difference the way that i perceive my depression changed forever I saw my depression as a cancer that I wanted to cut out of myself. I realised through the trial, depression is really about my ongoing relationship with myself. It softened the bottom. The bottom is still low. When I feel really low, it's still really bad. But there's a bit of cushioning there now. And also, I know that self-compassion is possible. And that helps in itself. Even though it's very hard to do, just knowing that I have felt that way helps me feel a little better about like myself. Like get there again. Yeah, there's that glimmer of hope. There's an ember still there. Well, Ian, all I can do is wish you the best for the future and hope everything Thank goes you. well for you. Thanks, Thanks so for coming much. In. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I think what's become clear from chatting to people who've been through the treatment like Ian as well as those researching it is psychedelics are not going to be a magic bullet. And yet up against that, there's this huge amount of hype. So I really am left wondering, are we keeping our feet on the ground here? So I put that to Liam Maudlin and first James Rucker. A huge amount of hype. And with that hype comes risk because people read that, people who may be depressed and desperate. And a lot of hope is attached to that. But if then they experience a psychedelic and it doesn't work or it makes them worse, you have disappointment on top of that. And, and, and that's where the clinical risk can lie. The how, do you, how do you balance that, though? Because there is also there is genuine excitement as well, yeah. though, isn't there? Because I, there's almost this thought that here's something that you can apply to people that all other treatments have failed. That is what's going to happen, is we're going to have this hype versus reality pendulum that will swing back and forth. But one of the exciting things about this is the way we're combining drugs with a therapeutic context. Liam, so you think that the amount of effort that goes in would still be worth it? I think so. I hope so. I think that part of the questions that we need to still ask and investigate is what are the long-term effects of these compounds and how people make use of their experience 12 months 18 months after treatment and we also have to figure out what this treatment might look like if approved in healthcare systems as in how many times do people need to get the treatment and what does this treatment model look like around that both of you thank you so much thank you well the royal college of psychiatrists shares those sentiments it says these drugs may offer some hope in treatment resistant depression but says we're still at the stage where more extensive research needs to take place but it's, of course, an area in desperate need of new treatments. So thank you to everyone, especially Ian, that helped us explore the idea of psychedelic therapy. I'm James Gallagher, and that's Discovery from the BBC. The producer was Geraldine Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Clara Graham. And I'm the BBC World Affairs editor, John Simpson. And we'd like to tell you about a new podcast from the BBC World Service, The Explanation. The Explanation looks beyond the headlines, bringing you in-depth analysis of the stories affecting our lives. 
Whether it's important long-running issues or the latest global events, we're making sense of the big stories and giving you an honest, unvarnished explanation of the world. Search for The Explanation wherever you get your BBC podcasts.